Can someone be radical and conservative at the same time? Is there a leadership style that breaks the rules and protects the rules at the same time? Sudhir Narayan, a bureaucrat who's done exactly that. He challenges conservatism when he finds them stifling and restricting. He guards the rules and laws of a system when he finds them of value for collective good. He is honest not only about his work, but also about himself. He has an interesting story to tell. And that is why my guest for today is Sudhir Narayanan. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Long, long time. Long, it's been. Since then, you've become a sportsman. You've become a marathon runner. You've done all kinds of things with yourself. I'm so impressed. Thank you. And you have not done anything less. A lot more, I guess, if I could say that. (laughs) You've got your book out and you have done your loads of research and you've been writing a lot and you've been, you know, a costal of... Sudhir, if I were to ask you, who are you? Who is Sudhir Narayan? How would you describe yourself? To put it in a, a simple sentence, I consider myself still a work in progress human. So in the sense that, see, I'm a person, you know, I could possibly label myself as a bureaucrat. I could possibly label myself as a teacher. I could possibly uh, label myself as a queer person who possibly is one of the few uh, bureaucrats out there, you know, different labels, but labels are some things that I generally don't subscribe to most of the times. You know, if you ask me, I look at myself as water. So I flow and then, you know, I grow, you contain me, then I stagnate. So (laughs) So can you you tell us about, you talked about flow. Can you give us a sub sense in terms of what's the origin of this flow and what has been the journey of this water? See, I come or I came from an extremely orthodox conservative and a small town upbringing where there were a lot of restrictions to begin with, be it at home or around, you know, starting from what I must do and what kind of things I must choose, etc. to what I should be studying and what I should be becoming, etc. over a period of time. All these things were restrictions to me. Uh, these were things that were barriers to my own growth for that matter. I always tried to stay within the barriers because I wanted to be more than anything else, a good son, possibly. And uh, as I started growing up, I also noticed that this left me extremely dissatisfied because this was not me out there. I was trying to perform a role that was defined to me by people around me, be it my parents or my teachers or anybody else for that matter. So I was in the bargain, I was not being myself. So the realization possibly took place when I lost a year in my graduation. So that was when I realized I'm doing a lot of things, but some of them possibly are right because now they are agreeable to me. But many other things are not agreeable to me because these are not things that I have chosen. So that was the kind of realization that happened possibly when I was maybe 18. And you dropped a year in college because you were studying something that you didn't want to study? No, I was studying something that I possibly wanted to study. I finished my plus two in science. I chose to give up engineering and join art stream. Mm-hmm. Art stream was right for me. But having grown up as a person who was so protected and so being 
guided by what people were telling me. So I messed up with my first year of college. I could not appear for the exams because I had not put in my application form, even though I had paid the fee for it, etc. So I lost a year in my university, first year graduation. So that was how things started changing for me. And I had to stay at home and start looking at things that I was doing till then. And what was your realization? What did you say? You said that that was a phase where I first started realizing that I was doing things or I was trying to be somebody that I wasn't or I didn't want to be. What were some of them? Most importantly, I was choosing what, say, parents wanted me to. There were certain choices that I had made. For example, I had decided I would not do engineering or medicine for that matter. And when parents asked me, I said, see, I do not have an interest in science. I would want to not pursue it. And they were in agreement with this. However, this agreement also came in because the relatives who they looked up also told them that, you know, this is what is going to be helpful for him if he is going to take up civil services exams. So there was this expectation from me that I would write civil services and I would become something. This was a cage that I already was living in. When I lost my year and stayed at home, I looked at the choices that I had made, including studying at a college that I was studying at and staying where I was staying and so on. So when there was pressure, for example, that I leave the place that I was in and join somewhere else because at any way I had lost my year and I had to make different choice and come back home. That was when I chose that, you know, no, this is not going to help me. I need to do things the way I see it than being dictated by somebody else. So if there are going to be failures, they're going to be mine. And if they're going to be successes, they're going to be mine too. I would not want to ascribe either failures or successes to somebody else. Both. So and this was at the age of 18. 18. Yeah. And would you call this as a, one of those first pivotal moments in your life? This definitely was one of those pivotal moments in my life because it gave me a lot of time. Apart from realizing that I need to do things my way. It also opened up different thought processes in the head in the sense that since I had free time, I, I took up to books a lot more. I was not somebody who was reading books in English before. So having studied in uh, Kannada medium until Glaston, etc., I had chosen English medium thereafter. So English was not natural to me. So then I started putting some efforts to learn the language, pick up books that were from English and make an effort to learn and understand how these were written and what the thought processes were. And then how did the water flow since then? So 18 okay. years old, Sudhir has decided that it's going to be my life, my choices, my price, my payoff, my rewards, my birth. So whatever. simple thing. I finished my graduation. So the natural choice of education for me was MA in English literature. However, I chose to do MBA. That was another decision that I took at the spur of the moment because I was offered a seat at the university and this exam also I had written because my friends had asked me if I could take up this exam and tell them what the experience was of writing the entrance test, attending the group discussion and attending the interview. When I received a letter from the Department of Management, I thought maybe they had sent a letter to inform that I haven't made it. Instead, when I go and see the list, I actually happen to be the second in the list of selections. <laughs> So I thought, you know, my, you know, I can learn English literature at any point of time. So might as well try this. This also, again, opened up an entirely new world to me. You know, something that I did not know existed. I learned economics, business economics. 
I did not know that there was something called management and that you could actually learn it as a subject and you could graduate. Which year was this, Sudhir? This was in uh, back in 1991. 91. And you had no yeah. exposure to the IIMs? And, uh, so I had no exposure to IIMs. I had heard of the graduation MBA and nothing beyond that. So, but and, when my friends had asked me, so I just did this. And, and I learned of IIMs and everything thereafter. And how did your father react to this? As, as my your father parents? said, see, it's your life. You have chosen to do things. So I guess it's fine. Okay, so your transition from hmm. trying to be the good boy and conform to all the things that your parents or your relatives were telling you to hmm. saying that, okay, now from now on, I'm the one who's going to decide what I'm going to do or not. This transition was uh, seamless in your relationship with your parents. Is that correct? When I took the decision to continue with my graduation, wherever I was pursuing, the college hmm. and the course, I had to fight. I had to fight. And I, it took me quite some time to convince my both parents, mm. both mother and father, because they did not want me to continue in a different town. They, you know, especially because I had lost a year, they, you know, the confidence in me was dented. So I had to put in extra efforts to convince them to continue wherever I was studying. But as things progressed, my performance and thereafter, you know, in my graduation years were good enough for my parents to, you know, get back the trust they had in me as a student regardless of what else I was doing. So when I chose to pursue MBA, my father said, see, I do not know what this is. I do not know how this is going to help you. However, this is your life. I'm not a person who's educated. I possibly would have relied upon somebody else to tell you what you should be pursuing. So instead, since you are taking the call, you might as well do what you think is good. So what happened after MBA? I started working in the private sector. I worked in three different organizations. I started with Times of India as a corporate relations executive. Right. So my job was to get ads for those uh, you know, featured spread outs that they would bring every Friday from corporates. So they, they would feature one corporate or the other. And it was my job to go get these ads from these corporates, etc. And also with other people and uh, you know, ensure that this would continue. There from Times of India, I moved to Sterling Holiday Resorts. And then I moved to Citibank's auto finance division. Then as I learned through these three experiences, I was not willing to work in the private sector the way the job demanded. I hated the fine print of most of the things. For example, Times of India was fighting case against the Times London at that point of time, the Sunday Times thinking. They wanted people like us to go and tell in the court that if at all the Times of India would lose to publish it as Sunday Times of India, many of us would end up losing jobs, which actually was unethical. And similarly, uh, say, uh, Sterling Holiday Resorts, there was a lot of fine print. You buy timeshare, it's 99 years, you're having a free holiday. But no, it wasn't free. There were a lot of hidden expenses that you had to pay every year. Mm. But you're not telling this to the customer. So I thought, you know, I can't live a life like this. I wasn't able to do this. So three different jobs, three different jobs expected practices that possibly were legal, but definitely unethical to me. That was when I decided possibly I should try for civil services again. Did you find at these times when you were working with, uh, with these uh, organizations, was the issue of unethicality something that was shared by your colleagues as well? Or were you, did you find yourself as a lone ranger? 
no we did have discussions with other people like for example i spoke to my colleagues say in the case of times of india i even had my own classmates who were working alongside however their outlook was different so they did not find anything wrong in continuing to do what they were doing and what was the rationale the rationale was this is how business actually works this is how it works so it's fine so it was the case in sterling holiday resorts it was the case in times 2 it was the case in city 2 however i did not have my classmates or friends over there i did have several colleagues with whom i had discussions the environment was quite abusive too can you elaborate on that a little more the managers were not exactly the role models that you would expect them to be they would throw tantrums they would use abusive languages and regardless of who they were using it to you know even with women and even in front of everyone so these were things that i found extremely rankling they still have stayed in my mind you know these are things that i associate say with the corporate sector even to this day how was your experience in the as a bureaucrat see the first thing was i realized what i am doing possibly you could call me a closet socialist why closet till then i had not realized that way acha okay so when i started working the government i realized who i was working for who benefited from what i was doing and how it actually affected the people who were impacted by the decision i was taking so these were things that were different say from the corporate sector this was pretty fine with me the impact that it had on me where i knew that if at all i take this decision because from day one i always have worked heading independent offices i most of the times have not worked under somebody so even as a young bureaucrat when i uh, reported in 99 in visakhapatnam i was given an independent charge of an office so i was working as financial advisor to one of the organizations of the navy so from those days onwards to this day i had had to take decisions myself and not rely upon somebody else so i was pushed into the ocean and made to learn to swim so it's been 22 years as a bureaucrat yeah yeah 23 years as a bureaucrat and you've worked largely with the defense uh, ministry largely with the defense yes but i also have worked with the ministry of surface transport i have worked with the pmo and uh, no the earthwell planning commission can tell us a little more what does leadership in the bureaucracy what's mm-hmm. the nature of the organization as you have experienced it can you tell us a little more about that okay just giving a small example when i joined navy in uh, 99 2000 the amount of delegation of financial powers say to the executive was very little and these things changed with a policy which was envisaged in 97 but implemented thereafter it's called naval instructions ni1s of 97 so this resulted in a lot of delegation and navy mind you was the first of the defense organizations that benefited from delegation of financial powers so what used to be the power of say a commodore or a brigadier in the army commodore in the navy say about 1000 rupees 10000 rupees etc suddenly jumped overnight to 50 lakhs and 20 lakhs so this also necessitated in the posting of a financial advisor so the powers of say the commodore who was heading the organization would be next to nothing without the financial advisor but with the involvement of the financial advisor the pass to expand would rise up to 50 lakh rupees i was the financial advisor who was posted there so what i learned in those first three years that i was 
in Visakhapatnam was that if you know why money is being spent, you can always control that it can be spent judiciously and for the right kind of purpose. See, as people from the finance wing, all of us are taught canons of financial propriety. So one of the simplest thing is that you shall spend money in the government the way you spend your own money, wisely. Simple as that. So if you actually understand and believe that, the rest of the things fall into place very seamlessly. You don't have to think beyond that. And there are lots of rules and regulations that are supposed to help you. But then most importantly, you should not surrender your logic to rules and regulations. You talked about leaving the corporate sector or the private sector because you Mm -hmm. found that across organizations, there were practices which you found unethical. What I understand is what you're saying is that once you move to the bureaucracy, one of the first lessons that you you learn was that the bureaucracy teaches you or seeks of you to treat the system as your own, that you belong to it and it belongs to you. And your decisions, you can take those decisions just as you would do it apply to your own life. Is that something that I'm picking up? Yes, that is true. That is very true. Thank you so so much for, you know, putting it this way. Seriously, I may not have uh, put it so beautifully, so well myself. See, the framework for a bureaucrat, however difficult this framework is, you're working for the people. You're not working for yourself, per se. You're working for the people and you're working for the welfare of the people regardless. You know, basically the money that you're spending as a bureaucrat is not coming from your pocket or because you're doing some business. This money is coming from the people, from the taxes that we are collecting both direct and indirect. And this money is being apportioned so that we can actually make changes and improvements in the infrastructure, regardless of which ministry. It could be directly going to the public through, you know, say PDS or through, say, the road constructions, etc. Or it could be indirectly going for the people through the defense forces, through our security mechanisms and so on. So this is one thing that I realized. Of course, you know, we do have a lot of lacuna within the bureaucracy itself because the name bureaucracy itself indicates the kind of slowness that is embedded in the system. That is one thing. And then, you know, the kind of corruption that we all talk about. So when we talk about this, my own experience was because I was heading an office and I was also in a sensitive position where I was the financial advisor. The roles during those days were not yet clearly separated because even though I was the financial advisor, I also was the payment authority. So all the bills that were raised at this organization would be paid by me. So the budget of this organization during those days was about 350 crores. All these bills would go through me, the salaries and perks of the people who were working, all the civilian and the industrial employees that were working in the organization would also be paid by me and uh, other kind of supplementary bills that they would be raised. So there was a system within this that, you know, there was corruption. So the first month after I reported, the very first week, one of the deputies that worked for me comes with some cash in his hand and tells me, and so this is your share. So I didn't understand. So then he explains it to me that this is the kind of money that we collect every month. So out of the money that we collect, you know, we don't force people to give us money. However, who give, whoever gives us money, we collect it. And then, you know, out of that, we pay 20% to the financial advisor. The rest of the 80% is being distributed among us. So since I'm the head of the office, so I get the lion's share. I was like taken aback. One, money all said and done in everybody's life is important. And having come from an extremely economically unsound background, 
So it was very easy to be tempted. On one side, there were principles that my father had taught. And on the other side, there was this desire, should I actually think about this? I'm being very honest about this. So I was tempted at that point of time that this is going to be a regular source of income. Every month this is going to be there. And he also had added for all the cases where you are providing financial advice, you could take money separately from the contractor. And if you would want, we would also arrange someone to do these dealings for you. It was very well organized. Yeah, it is very well organized. So I was on one side taken aback how well oiled systems are. And at the same time, you know, there were so many different thoughts that were running in my head. It happened to be a Friday. I still remember very clearly. I told him, I'll take some time. Let me think about it and come back. So I went back. I was staying by myself at that point of time. Most of my life, you know, ever since I started uh, studying away from parents, I've always stayed by myself. So I went back and I was thinking about these things. And I happened to have a conversation with a scientist friend who was working alongside in Vishakhapatnam. He was a scientist in the Naval Organization in the DRDO establishment called NSTL, Naval Scientific and Technological Laboratory. His name is Praveen. So he asked me, what exactly are you, you know, thinking about? You seem to be lost in parts. Then I told about this entire thing. But then he said, Sudhir, we don't respect you because you're a civil servant. We don't respect you because you're intelligent. We don't respect you because, you know, you actually can have this coercive power over other people. We respect because you are honest. We respect because you haven't surrendered your integrity. So these are things that stayed with me forever. It feels as though he spoke to me just now. Apart from you know my own father's ways of life, this came at the right moment. Listening to him, it actually you know cleared a lot of cobwebs and clouds that I had formed by myself because money was pretty tempting, very alluring. So I came back to the office on Monday. And said no. So the action was like, you know, are you sure, sir? You know, you know, but people before you have taken and people at other places do too. See, it's not that everybody is corrupt in the government. Simple. There are a lot of people who are corrupt. There are a lot of people who are not corrupt too, regardless of which ministry, regardless of which kind of post a person holds, etc. Very clear. But corruption definitely exists in more ways than one. So at the same time, his reaction was he felt happy because he didn't have to share this money with me. So, but then, you know, I couldn't let this stay the way it is. Mm-hmm. How would I address corruption at the office became a question that I had to answer in the next few months. Do I stay, you know, coexist with corruption or do I fight corruption, become a crusader? Like, you know, how you would see in movies or in books, mm-hmm. etc. Simple. See, one thing I realized was I would not be able to stop corruption. If you have made up your mind to become corrupt, you can find avenue anywhere for that matter. Even where there is no direct avenue where you are not handling money, etc., you still can create one. I thought it was pragmatic at that point of time. You could possibly find faults with me. But I chose to ignore the kind of corruption that was being made by these people because you know, out of the kind of payments that we were making, it was amounting to less than 0.01% of the kind of payments that we were making. So I did not want to touch it. But however, I told one thing clearly, if there is a complaint, you would face the music. If there is a complaint, you would face the music. People would have to pay the price for it. Over a period of time, I got people changed at the office with the intervention of a boss who was understanding, who understood what 
I was talking about and where I came from. So I could change the setup of the office. However, this could not be done at every place. And second thing was that, you know, the kind of angst that I had with respect to people who were corrupt. How do I deal with it? So this was another thing that I had to answer in the sense that you can't actually fight people because they're corrupt. You can only fight the process. You cannot fight people. Give me a sense of that. What you're saying sounds so interesting. See, I was in a procurement organization. That's okay. how the budgets were high. So the very next organization, you know, I was asked for and the budget of the organization was about 1200 crores per annum. Okay. So this was 20 odd years ago. So right. 20 years ago, 1000 crores would be about nearly five, 6000 crores today, if not more. Okay. So these were the kinds of money that we were seeing during those days. And there used to be cuts everywhere. And in this organization, it also happened that several people were caught being corrupt and court-martialed and were sentenced to rigorous imprisonment thereafter. What I hear you saying is that in that organization, you took it on, you collaborated with your boss who was supportive and using the fear of consequences, you were able to stop the corruption in that particular system. That's only partly. Only partly, not wholly. Only partly, yes. Okay. See, because there are two sides to corruption. One is right. corruption on the finance side and corruption right. on the decision-making side. So the decision-making was being done by one organization. The finances right. were being handled by my organization. So could I stop corruption on the decision-making side? What kind of corruption would be on the decision-making side? There must be benefits uh, why the decision would be biased, right? So if not financial, what kind of benefits would there be? That would be financial too. Like for example, okay. see, I was not the decision maker. I was the advisor. However, I also was handling payments when the bills would be raised. Right. But if who was placing the order, right. the executive was placing the order. Like for example, while I was the advisor, I was advisor to the person who was taking the decision. The person who was taking the decision may have been honest, but the machinery under him may not have been. So that was something that I would not have been able to address. So that was outside your influence, your circle of Yeah, influence. it was outside my influence. So wherever I've had my influence, I've tried to fight it in my own way without trying to combat or confront it directly. So when you say that the lesson that I learned was not to get into direct combat with a corrupt person, but to engage with the process, can you give yes. us a little more sense of what that really means? See, how do you deal with a corrupt person? You actually deal it emotionally, right? You're trying to fix this person and try to take an action which actually would put him or her in a place of difficulty and where she or he has to face the music for his or her actions. But when you deal it with the process, you're trying to fix things that actually could be taken care of on paper and where everything would be very clear. Like, you know, uh, what are the different stages, you know, when it actually comes to in a purchasing process? Starts with the demand itself. So the demand itself, let's suppose that, you know, you would want to buy something for your organization. So that is where, the, you know, the involvement of the financial person starts. So look at whether this demand is justified. The second thing is that, you know, look at if the demand is justified, if the demand is justified, the product that is being proposed to fulfill this need that exists, is it justified or can it be met with something which actually is say a better option, not cheaper, not necessarily, right? Mm. A better option. 
that is the second thing and then who are you going to are you trying to buy it from a single source or are you buying it competitively so if you're buying it competitively who are you going to are these the authorized people to supply or are you going to somebody who is a fixer see this is the thing that plagues our procurement system we have too many fixers we have too many middlemen it's not bad to have middlemen you know middlemen there are two kinds you know middlemen see the entire distribution system for example could become the middlemen also but that is a thing that has to exist but there can be middlemen who are not needed in the system i'll get this thing for you i'll do this for you so how do you deal with you know uh, ensuring that the process the people through who you would want to buy are the authorized genuine ones and then ensure that you know all these people who are genuine are also bidding for this so you you're able to engage with the process also because especially as far as corruption is concerned yes. also because your role and you know your domain of work was around financial services and you were an That's advisor right. so you had yes. the authority and the power have you ever found yourself in a situation which was very unethical uncomfortable probably illegal for you as well or corrupt mm-hmm. but where you didn't have a, cir- a circle of influence and you didn't have any role authority to act on anything yes see in the government of india everything works on hierarchy very clear so if a sanction to buy something is given by a higher authority to a lower authority you don't question it so a sanction similarly was received at this organization where i was financial advisor and it was issued that you shall buy laptops okay so many numbers and within this budget and the sanction also mentioned the make of the laptop like for example you shall buy dell laptops okay okay so this is when a sanction is given and if at all a make etc is mentioned it essentially means you are killing complete competition all around it especially when it is an item that is readily available in the market however if at all you are issuing a sanction say to buy a helicopter or mm-hmm. say a, an aeroplane it actually makes sense that you know you shall buy from so and so because the due diligence would be done by somebody else mm-hmm. and you are just executing a decision however in the case of say something that is readily available in the market from various sources trying to do this would only mean that there is either omission or commission that you shall buy dell computers or say hp computers or compaq or, or something of course many of them may not exist today whatever happened mm-hmm. so this was the sanction several of such things did happen so that was when i had to say of a novice stood up and said no this is not correct you did yeah okay. i did yeah this is not correct so when the battle at my own organization was failing mm-hmm. then i engaged with the financial advisor at the higher level and spoke to this lady so and told her ma'am this is the case while the sanction is fine but you know issuing a sanction wherein uh, it has to be bought from a special source is not the right thing to do because it means that you have to put this condition and then you know then limit the competition mm-hmm. and there is no reason that has been elaborated as to why only this is the right thing to do so this lady found merit in it took this to the appropriate authority and got this sanctions cancelled but so there are he, times when i also have been punished for these things and what kind of punishments were they punished in the sense that you know where there would be admonishments that you know why are you trying to get involved in everything why are you trying to question everything that is being done or at a different level where i have been removed from this organization and posted elsewhere 
so that I don't have to deal with transfers, transfers, or you know where this organization is removed from my area of operation, and somebody else asked to take care of those things while I stay in the same station with different kind of work, different kind of things. What I hear you saying is that uh, you were a crusader in a sense of a certain kind, and you've paid the price, and sometimes it worked, and sometimes it didn't. We all have to pay the price. Uh huh. Yeah. See, of different if kinds. you don't fight, you pay a price differently. You see the system rotting, crumbling, and you see the system being taken advantage of, and you see the system being hijacked by people who are unscrupulous, and it actually affects. everything else around it so what does leadership in a deeply hierarchical system mean to me leadership is about two things one is change and the other is teach say a little more okay leadership is about teaching people who are there with you to do things the right way and to ensure that the processes are respected and not just the product end doesn't always justify means so in a in a hierarchical system if you cannot be the rebel in the same way that you can be in a non hierarchical institution what's the identity there how do you really change things you talked about teaching and influencing that but that sounds yes. to be pretty much within your circle of influence but in a, when you work in a system where corruption is so well organized and so well distributed mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. across the hierarchy then what's the what's the nature of leadership that comes into play see teaching is something that you have to do regardless of what your circle of influence is if your circle of influence today is say two there are right. two people you can influence even if you are able to influence somebody positively say one of them so that one person continues the, and expand the circle of influence with time Right. See, uh, so the there are no short gains always. Yes, the thing is, how do you ensure you actually can cause bigger gains within the framework that we exist in? Say in the bureaucracy, it would be difficult. Difficulty because your area of operation would always be limited, regardless of what role you are playing. Even as a secretary to the entire ministry, mm-hmm. your level of influence is only within that secretariat. Sure. it does not even flow beyond the secretariat and reach the field offices which mm-hmm. are existing in other places however yeah. if you are effective in spreading your influences within the secretariat it becomes easier for other people also to take this as an example and learn from them you can right. only teach it by it may be a slow process however you have to be always at it you have okay. to not only talk about it but also you have to be seen doing the right thing i started asking you the three pivotal change points and you talked about the age 18 being yeah. one you talked about probably your decision to change from the corporate sector and leave the corporate sector saying that this is not for me seems to be the other pivotal point is that is that a fair assumption it's a fair assumption yes yeah what would the third pivotal point in your life the third pivotal point was the day when i chose to stay honest and true to my own principles when i refused the bribe that was offered to me it's interesting because when you when you introduced yourself i think you were very emphatic about probably the only openly queer bureaucrat in the system but when you talk yeah. about your your pivotal moments that doesn't quite feature it there the- are two incidents i would like to talk about when right. it comes to this one is 
during my training period, this was way back in 98 when I had joined the service, 98, 99. It was the beginning of the internet era. And it was also the beginning of me exploring my sexuality. During uh, this time, I only just about had learned how to use a desktop, how to navigate on a website, etc. How old were you then? I was about 27, 28. Okay, single. Yeah, single. Out so, of college, in your corporate career? No, I was in the civil services. I had already joined the civil services. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, okay, I had joined time. the civil services. I was undergoing training. Yeah, okay. so I had uh, surfed certain websites which actually were about gay porn, etc. So then, you know, somebody noticed within the circle of the people who were training alongside. So this person tried to blackmail me. You know, the training accommodation, we were all staying in the training accommodation. We had access to these desktops that were given to us where we could actually access internet. So it was common facility for all of us. So this person noticed who it was because I had not erased the history of the various websites. I did not even know how to erase this, etc. So I didn't know. So this history was still left. And then he had found, he had put two and two together and arrived that it must be me. So he tried to blackmail me. He wanted favors from me. And then he asked me to do certain things. Otherwise, he is going to let everybody know about my sexuality. So this was one time when I had to put my foot down. I do not know where I found this courage from. I said, go ahead and do it. I'm not willing to do anything. No favors to you. No matter what kind. No favors. I'm willing to be exposed. And what kind of favors did he, did he want? He wanted money? He wanted uh, sexual favors? What? Sexual favors. So he wanted sexual favors from you yeah. for uh, uh, looking at uh, gay porn sites and therefore threatening you, saying that I'm going to out you to other people. Yes. But I would like to have sexual favors from you. Yes. Okay, that's, that's, that's quite ironical. Yes. So it is ironical in hindsight, but at that point of time, I was my thinking prowess was clouded and all I knew was, oh God, you know, what's happening with me, you know, but then at the same, at the same time, sense prevailed that, you know, I'm not willing to be subjected to blackmail by somebody. I would rather face the music of being outed as a gay man out here than do something that I don't want to. And then what happened? Did he out you? No. So he tried to come strongly on me several times thereafter, but then I had to, I knew how to handle myself. That was one thing. The second time it happened was in 2000, pretty recently, 2013. Remember the judgment that came about of the Supreme Court when they re-criminalized gay sex. This was in December 2013, if I'm not mistaken. So somebody asked me, are you willing to give a quote to Times of India about this? I said, okay. At the spur of the moment, I didn't even think if at all it's the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do. And I said, yes. And at this point of time, uh, where were you working? In, uh... I was working in Bangalore. I was working under the Planning Commission and PMO, Prime Minister's Office, in the UIDAI, okay. Unique Identification Authority of India. The Aadhaar Aadhaar. Part. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I was working with the Aadhaar at that point of time. And then they asked me for a quote. And some journalist called me up and asked. I said, okay. So I gave some quote. I don't remember now. Uh, I'm not willing to stay in the closet anymore or something like that. I'm willing to fight this fight. And then she asked me if I could send a picture of mine. Without thinking, I also shared my picture. The next day, the picture and the quote appeared on the front page of Times of India. 
so this was something that i had not done consciously i didn't realize that it might end up on the front page of times of india at all i thought they might mention it somewhere etc and then she possibly just wanted to you know take the picture and then you know put it up to them if at all they would want to put it along with the article somewhere then a lot of people had seen this people called me up and asked me was that you people from the government a lot of people asked me about this thereafter following this in this week after that people from times now channel contacted me and my then partner and asked if at all we were willing to do an interview for them now that i had already done this adventure of giving a quote and appearing on uh, times of india front page i said okay let's do this too it's fine so i interviewed to appeared on times of india on prime time and it was also repeatedly telecast several times thereafter this resulted in almost everybody in the uida and most of the other government circles that i had worked with coming to know about my sexuality and etc so a lot of people also congratulated me and sent me messages stating that you know this is very brave of you you know we really stand by you and we have a lot of respect and in uidi was a public private partnership a lot of people from the private sector also were working with me many of them sent me messages stating that i believe in equal rights for all etc my boss also who had seen the interview he happens to be the chairman of the dalwai committee of agricultural reforms etc so dr ashok mr ashok dalwai so he also had seen the interview but he was finding it hard to express that you know he had seen this and this is something that he has come to know about yeah. and that became apparent when we were discussing the issues of uh, mr yashwan sinha's unfortunate utterances with respect to arresting gay partner of american or canadian envoy at that point of time yeah so there were times you know with respect to my sexuality too i have stood up and said okay this is it so do whatever you feel like i'm here i can't hide it so why is this such a pivotal moment you came out you declared you know people were supportive you didn't lose your job you were not thrown out of the house nothing really terrible happened neither did something fantastic happen i mean it didn't really turn out to be that the supreme court of india said that you know hey sudhir narayan what if our bureaucrats is gay and therefore let's sure turn the judgment that didn't happen either so why no. this is such a pivotal moment see it was a release it was not about achieving something out of it in the sense that it was not something about oh i found so much of support for me being me or oh this actually resulted in me you know me rising to another level or me becoming a big voice in say the queer movement in india or any of those things nothing so to me it was like a breathe easy moment oh i have said whatever i wanted to say for a very long time now i don't have to hide this anymore now people don't have to ask this question anymore so if sudhir were to step outside of sudhir and take a look at him huh. and describe what kind of a leader is sudhir what would sudhir say you're looking at yourself from the outside Yes, Sudhir is a compassionate, democratic, participative kind of leader. If you had to go back in time, and huh. today Sudhir is how old are you, Sudhir? Fifty. You're fifty. If you had to go back to your eighteen-year-old self, mm-hmm. right, just as you entered college, would live a very sheltered life until then. And if you had to write a letter, what would that letter contain? Be yourself. Make mistakes. Learn from them. and it's okay to have doubts it's fine you will always grow up to be the person you should be and if sudhir has to write a letter 
to 70-year-old Sudhish. What would it say? Ah, this is interesting. Writing a letter to the person was easier. <laughs> I hope you don't have any regrets in life. And I hope that you have enjoyed the journey that you have done so far. And that I hope that you still are making lists of things that you want to do in life. And you still are relishing every day the way you do. You have done before. Lovely. Thank you, Sudhir. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Thank it was you so much. Talking to All of us inherit legacies from our family, our lineage, our culture and society. All of us cross the journey of trying to be a good son or daughter, a dutiful and responsible inheritor. Some of us face and experience doubts and dilemmas with tradition, norms, values and beliefs that we inherit from our parents, families, our schools or the communities we have grown up in. How we experience this individuation often defines the roles we subsequently take in our lives. In Sudhir's case, he may have broken some rules and dictates and taken decisions for himself, taking the responsibility of whatever eventuality. He has been a rebel, but a rebel with a cause, where he decides to take a path for himself that may not be always easy, but it is very meaningful for him. Labels are often restrictive. One may call Sudhir conservative when one listens to him talk about his faith in governance, in democracy, in the bureaucracy. One may call him radical when one listens to him talk about his experience with corporate organizations and his open challenge to decriminalization of homosexuality. One may find him firm and unmovable in his non-acceptance of abuse of power in hierarchical systems. One may also call him a maverick leader who has his own rules by which he plays his roles in any system. Sudhir's sharing invites us to think about our own experiences of individuation, doesn't it? It does invite us to think what role we may take in organizations when we experience and observe abuse of power. What assumptions do we make of implications and repercussions when we choose to closet parts of ourselves or throw caution to the air. Lots of cut to chew. And until the next time, here's me signing off. Goodbye for now. <laughs>